we're going to move into chapter 2 of First Peter. I'm just going to read the first 10 verses. I'm not sure how far we're going to get. We'll just, just see uh, what happens. We may get all through the whole chapter, but we'll, we'll read the first 10 verses because it's kind of the first section of the chapter. Uh, and then we'll, we'll just jump into the study and we'll, we'll see where we go. So um, if you've got your Bibles, turn to First Peter uh, chapter 2 and we read, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile, and hypocrisies, and envies, and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. If so be you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, you also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offence. Even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvellous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy but have now obtained mercy. So that's the opening, as it were, to this chapter. And of course, it leads straight in from the the following uh, chapter. Of course, in the original, there were no chapter breaks. Um, They were put in uh, by Archbishop Stephen Langton in about the 12th century. So, um, you know, we we read through. This is still one continuous letter. Um, Peter didn't sit down at the end of the chapter one and have a break. This is just a continuation of what he's already been saying. Uh, Now, just before we jump into that, a reminder of the kind of overview of this. Uh, In the first chapter and then in the first eight verses specifically uh, of this chapter really it's a uh, uh, looking at the christian conduct how we should live our lives in the light of the hope that we have uh, peter's really keen to focus on that which is to come and speaks a lot in these letters about the return of jesus um, the second section which we'll kind of pick up and move into uh, in a little while it begins really in chapter 2 verse 9 as we start to look at the the church being a chosen generation of royal priesthood we find there's actually seven specific things that Peter lists there about the believer's life the chosen generation a royal priesthood a holy nation peculiar people uh, to show the praises of him being called out of darkness and we've been called into his marvelous light seven different things um, that Peter brings all in the the flow as he's speaking but we'll look at each of those things as we go through over uh, this morning if we get there and obviously in subsequent weeks as well uh, if the Lord tarries and then um, the third section really is looking at Christian service uh, we see really again in the light of the coming chief shepherd uh, the fact that Jesus is returning and how then should we be serving and what should we be doing in the light of all these things so that's really a, a kind of a uh, breakdown hopefully it's helpful just to kind of get a, a kind of a, a map in the sense of, of where we're going and what Peter's really covering as we look at these things um, but very much it's looking at the, the Christian lifestyle, how we live as believers uh, and why we live as believers and, and so on. So 
Let's jump into First uh, Peter chapter two verse one, and as we've already seen there, wherefore the chapter begins. So we have to always see when we see a wherefore, we have to ask what is therefore. That's the the basic rule that we have. Um, uh, it says because of uh, you know what Peter's now said, and just let me remind you those things that we've looked at uh, in the previous uh, chapter, chapter one, going through this. That those uh, fivefold admonitions that Peter gave. So this is based on. All that Peter's already said. So firstly, we should be girding up the loins of our minds, ready to run in a sense, uh, is the idea. Ready to, 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 to run that race, to, to go out to meet the Lord that is coming. Second one, be sober, meaning be self-controlled. Third one, we should be setting our hope fully. There shouldn't be anything else that we're hoping for. This is a review of what we've looked at. You know, not conforming ourselves to our former lust, the way we once lived, looking to grab everything for our own selves, for our own pleasure, and so on. You know, and that we're there to be holy because God is holy. And Peter says, wherefore, because of all these things, he's now going to go on and just add some things to that. But if you remember also in the previous chapter, Peter reminds us that we haven't been redeemed with something uh, just a, a, as temporal as the, the half shekel of the sanctuary. Um, but we've been redeemed. We've been purchased, bought back by the blood of Christ. And so now on, on the back of that, you know, this, this incorruptible seed that, that we've been born of. He speaks, Peter speaks again of being born again quite, quite a, a number of times uh, in these letters. Because of all that, he says, now laying aside. And this is really going to be a call to holiness. Uh, and, and repentance is called for. I mean, repentance literally is turning around and going in the other direction. And that is what Peter's going to tell us we should be doing. He's going to list five sins of attitude and speech, okay, which drive wedges between believers. They quench the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. They stunt spiritual growth. And they give a false witness of Christ. And these are the things that Peter is saying, you know, we should be living in a way that is holy before God. So these things shouldn't be there. And he's, just in case we're in any doubt when in the last chapter, Peter says we should be holy. In case we go away, well, what does that mean? Well, now Peter's going to explain what he means. This is how we should be living. So let's have a look at these. The first one then, laying aside all malice. This is the first thing that Peter says, because of all that we've looked at, because of this position we have and all that's yet ahead of us. Uh, the Greek verb expresses the idea of removing garments, you know, taking off a, a coat or clothing or whatever else. You know, put off all malice, just remove it from you, separate it from yourself. When you take a coat off and you put it on a hook or whatever, you're separating yourself from your person. Well, that's exactly how we should be with things like malice. Now, in case you're not sure what is malice, well, the Greek word you can see there, but really it means wicked ill will. That, that's what malice is. It's the desire to inflict pain or harm or injury on someone else. And we may think, you know, well, that doesn't really apply to me. I'm not that kind of person. But I guarantee you, there's been moments, maybe when you've been out driving a car and somebody's cut you up, or, or where you've heard that somebody said something about you that wasn't true or wasn't kind, you know, or where you've just been in a situation where you've just detected somebody's being unjust or unfair. And it's very hard in those moments not to have a little bit of malice creep in there. You know, and we're all guilty of this. And, you know, Peter tells us this stuff not because we've got it sorted. He tells us because we need to get it sorted. You know, this is admonitions for believers who are growing in grace. So we're all in the same boat. We all have the same challenges, the same problems. But Peter's saying now, identifying it so that we can at least address the problem. 
The second thing to point out here is that we have this repeated uh, use of the word all. Laying aside all malice and all guile, hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. You know, if it was just a little bit of it, it'd be okay. But he says we should put all of it aside. You know, maybe it's uh, easy not to to show malice to people that we know and that we have some sort of relationship with. But people that have injured us or harmed us, you know, that's when it's harder you know, but this is what, where scripture tells us that we, we mustn't bear grudges. You know, that, that kind of, um, desire for revenge sometimes can be a very, very insidious thing that can really impact people. You know, a lack of forgiveness in our heart can cause all sorts of problems. And of course, Jesus made it really clear that if we're not prepared to forgive others, then we are placing ourselves under the law. Okay. But this is the point that Jesus really makes. Matthew 18 is your, your go-to scripture for this. But if you find that somebody has wronged you, according to the law, you are right to go and exact your revenge on that individual under the law. But you see, we have been saved by grace. We've had a much bigger debt forgiven us by God. And so we're not in a position that we can then go to our fellow men and say, you know, well, actually, you, although you owe me a much smaller debt than I've been forgiven, I expect you to, to repay it. Of course, that's the whole principle. We can either live under law or under grace. But if we live under law, we're condemned ourselves. Now, we are beneficiaries of God's grace, and so we are to show that grace to other people. All, again, every every single situation, even though sometimes it's challenging, it's hard, we need to go to the Lord and pray for the grace that he will give us to enable us to live this way. So uh, that's the first one. The second one uh, is all guile. Um, Now, in case you're not sure, the the Greek word this uh, dolon is interesting because we're going to see a, a, a kind of a, a use of this in a minute. Um, but the the idea of deceit is deliberate dishonesty and falsehood, craft, uh, seduction, slander, treachery. I mean, lots of different English words that really are encapsulated by the Greek word. Uh, and you know, operationally, it's the antithesis of being a fiduciary. You know, that's that's someone who has this um, trust. Uh, this relationship built upon trust and integrity and honesty, you know, and so Peter's saying we should get rid of all guile. It shouldn't be there. It shouldn't be seen in our lives. There shouldn't be any desire to deceive others or to be dishonest for our own ends or whatever, or to, to get back at someone or whatever. You know, and deceit and hypocrisy uh, are very much like twins. Uh, you know, by deceit, it's been said that a person is wronged and by hypocrisy, he's deceived. Uh, hypocrisy, as we look at that, um, some of you may be familiar, but the, the, the Greek word for this, uh, it, it's the same word that comes, it was used for an actor, somebody who would put on a mask. So somebody who would literally play the part to achieve an end. That's what hypocrisy is. It's simply becoming, well, we could use the expression all things to all men, but it's 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 saying the right thing to a person to elicit the result you want, whether or not you really truly believe it. It's becoming an actor. Uh, and it's really pretended piety and love, pretending to be what one is not. It's a really the idea that a man with a double heart and a lying tongue. And again, Jesus quoted Isaiah to the Pharisees, reminding them of their own hypocrisy. Envy, the second part of this part, really, is, again, the Greek word implies yeah, resentful, discontent. And again, both hypocrisy and envy appear in the plural in the Greek. This isn't just a singular thing. It multiplies these things in our lives as well. And then the last one on this list for now is evil speaking. It's really slander. 
Um, again, you see the Greek word there, but you know, it's backbiting, it's lies. Uh, and none of these should have any place in those who are born again. Peter's reminded us that we are born again. We've been born not of a corruptible seed, of an incorruptible seed. We've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Consider your position, the fact that you are now under grace. Therefore, none of these things should be part of our life because, you know, whether we think we're justified in malice or sometimes beguiled, trying to deceive someone else or that hypocrisy, you know, we, we can argue and make it make the case to our own hearts and minds that we're justified in those things. But once again, that puts us under the law and none of us can stand before a holy God if we're under the law. We need to be under grace and so we must so show grace to others. And also it's, it's being in obedience to the word, the word of God, you know, and believers to make decisive breaks with the past. This is what Paul is saying. It, it, it's so sad sometimes when we meet people who seemingly have made a profession of faith. They, they say they have put their trust in Jesus. They claim to be born again. And then you look at their lives and you see no outward change. And it's a real tragedy that someone can come that close to understanding the gospel, and yet there clearly is no visible change. Jesus made it very, very clear. He said, it's by their fruits that you'll know them. You know, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. We are going to produce fruit. As individuals, we will produce fruit. The question is, what is the the nature of that fruit we produce? And of course, that is determined by the source, what it's connected to. Ron Matson, I remember him saying many years ago, and it really stuck with me, you know, um, that if you're not uh, producing good fruit, you have to question the connection to the root. And it's a very obvious thing, you know, from a horticultural perspective. If something is not producing the the healthy leaves or the flowers or the fruit that you would expect it to, there may be a problem with the root. There may be a problem with that connection with the root. And if that connection is, is severed, it's broken, you know, whatever, then, you know, the, the leaves can blow all day long. They're, they're not going to produce that which they need to. So it goes on after that opening verse one again. Let me read that. Wherefore lay aside all malice and guile, hypocrisies, envies, and all evil speaking. Then he carries on straight away as newborn babes. So this is the contrast now. Desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Now, when we were going through our recent study in James, we talked a lot about the influences that we have from the world, those things that uh, affect our heart and our mind, and so on. And this is really what Peter's saying. You know, we can be very influenced by those worldly things, the things he lists in verse 1. But he's saying what we need to do is to counter that by becoming influenced by the things of God. We should be just as a, a baby, you know, that really is seeking nourishment uh, from God's word, as a baby would crave for milk. You know, newborn babies, their, their, their life depends upon the next feeding. And it should be the same with us. We should be going to God's word, knowing that we're not going to grow unless we are receiving that milk of the word we need it to grow and that we can move on to solid food you know after believers cast out impure desires and motives which again is first ones covered uh, they need to feed on the wholesome spiritual food that produces growth the, the word sincere by the way in uh, verse two there 
and that uh, you, they uh, desire this sincere milk. It's interesting. The word in, in the Greek uh, is this word uh, adalon, uh, and it, it just means unadulterated or pure. And it's deliberately by Peter contrasted with the word he used. If you made, I mentioned a moment ago in verse one, dolon. So it is the antithesis of that. Um, you have dolon, which is deceit, and so on. Uh, but then you have adalon, so the, the opposite. So it's saying that that sincere. Um, um, milk that we should desire. That's how we should desire it. You know, God's word, uh, does not deceive. And of course, neither should God's children. And we should desire God's word so that we grow as he would have us, uh, in knowledge and in grace. And this is something Peter himself is going to come on to. Uh, so Christians should approach the word with clean hearts and minds in an eager anticipation and uh, with a desire to grow spiritually. Could you imagine a, a baby that had no desire to grow, you know, or, or a toddler that just couldn't care less about growing? You know, in a sense, you, it, it's a it's a mute argument because, of course, the, the the process is already in place. They don't really get to control the process. But actually, you know, every child, every every toddler, every baby grows. It's a natural thing, and so it should be for Christians. You know, and if you're not growing. Once again, you have to connect, question the connection to the root. If that connection is there, we by default should be growing spiritually. Now, of course, some of us grow at different speeds. Some of us don't grow as fast as we should because we allow too many other influences in. Some of us are uh, weighed down by the, the cares and the things of this world. Some of those things that really stunt our spiritual growth and things we were talking about earlier. And they can have a big impact. <clears throat> Peter goes on in verse 3 and says, uh, if, so in other words, all that he's just said, if so be, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. It's almost a kind of a rhetorical device he's using here. Of course, the Lord is gracious, and we know God's gracious, and really it's saying, you know, okay, so you do know that God is gracious, so you should be doing this. That's really the import of what's being said here. Uh, and actually, Peter here is quoting Psalm 34 verse 8 uh, and again continues that milk analogy used in verse 2 likening it to that present knowledge of Christ it, you know that that tasting of you know that becoming a um, a part of you letting it become a part of you you know they take a, a sample uh, of what it was like to to know Christ to learn of Christ you know having experienced God's grace in their new birth and have found that indeed the Lord is gracious. So really what Peter's saying, as I said a moment ago, is that we know God is gracious, and so there should be this change in us. He's gracious, we should be gracious. And as a result of that, seeking him, wanting to be like him, we grow. And we talk about verse 4 then, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. It's interesting, this use of the word, Peter here, uh, living stone. Now, scholars may argue, and throughout the centuries they have indeed argued, about the meaning of what Jesus said in Matthew 16. That that situation that um, Caesarea Philippi, if you remember, we spoke about it in our introductory session to Peter, uh, where Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter steps in and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, the flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father, which is in heaven. And then he goes on to tell Peter that you are Petros, you are a pebble. But upon this rock, meaning himself, Jesus himself, I will build my church. Now, of course, the Catholic Church misunderstood, misapplied that. They believed that it was referring to Peter, that Peter was the rock upon which the the church was to be built. 
It's not what Jesus said. The, the Greek language doesn't allow for that. But that led to this era where Peter was seen as being the first pope and uh, the head of the church in Rome. And as we said already, there's no real evidence at all that Peter ever went to Rome. Um, you know, some scholars think that he did, but there's no evidence for that. Um, in fact, it, it, curiously, the only real reference uh, is where Peter speaks or is writing to those that dispersed in Babylon uh you're from babylon where he's writing and people therefore say well rome is a, an idiom or babylon is an idiom of rome um because of what it says in revelation which is quite interesting because it linked rome to the details we have in revelation 17 18 but that aside you know peter is not the rock upon which the church was built uh, no question and here peter himself tells us so he tells us that the the rock the stone in question here is jesus christ and we are to come to jesus unto a living stone again disallowed of men jesus was rejected by men okay but chosen of god and notice what he says and precious yeah, so the rock is Christ himself, that living stone. And every believer also in Christ, through Christ, is also to be a living stone, made such by his grace. We'll talk about that in a minute. Just to, I want to go back and just look at that word that we have there, to whom it says coming. Um, this is a quote from Chuck Misler, but I thought it was quite helpful. Uh, it says, the Greek indicates that this coming is a personal, habitual action. It's an intimate association of communion and fellowship between believers and their Lord. What Chuck's saying is that this is a continual thing. We don't just come to the Lord once. We continually keep coming back time and time and time again to the Lord. We come to the living word. And again, he's a living stone. <clears throat> that uh, stone again, uh, is, uh, this phrase is a living stone. It has life in itself and gives life to others this is what christ does and people may enter into a personal vital relationship with this living stone with christ and peter's using a figure of speech here in chapter 1 verse 3 he referred to the living hope in chapter 1 verse 23 to the living word and now he's referring to christ as the living stone all of those speaking of jesus uh but again being living being active uh you know not dead as in the things of the world we're told again also disallowed indeed of men but chosen of god and christ of course was rejected by men disallowed uh, but god many scriptures uh, tell us peter a number of times alludes to this but god has chosen him and is precious that word precious peter uses a number of times as we've already mentioned christians rejected by the world of course should take heart in the knowledge that they are the elect that's what peter says in chapter 1 verse 1 and that we're valued by god you know, we should never be distraught or upset or worried if the world doesn't love us. You know, if colleagues don't accept us, if people at school or college or whatever stage of our lives, wherever we are, you know, if people reject us because of our faith, because of our belief, it should never be a problem because we, we don't, we're not from here. Our citizenship is in heaven and we shouldn't be at all worried if people reject us as because we are God's elect because we, we're valued by God. That is infinitely better than being accepted and acknowledged by man. <clears throat> Again, this uh, continues, as Peter says in verse 5, you also, as lively stones, was, again, we are made into these living stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now, Again, believers identified with Christ, for he is the living stone, are like living stones. And as they become more like him, 
you know, further conform to his image. They're being built up into a spiritual house. Uh, Jesus had told Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, Jesus himself is that rock, and we are built on that rock. We're going to become like Jesus. We become part of that structure, in a sense, intimately connected with him. Uh, and Peter clearly identifies Christ as the rock on which the church is built, which kind of puts an end to that whole argument uh, back in Matthew 16. I'll just read this to you. This is by Spurgeon. I have read this once or twice in the past, but I think it's just so uh, apt for this this session this morning. Um, Zechariah 6.13, we have that scripture that he, speaking of the Messiah who was coming, shall build the temple of the Lord and he shall bear the glory. Now, in a, in a physical sense, when the Lord returns at the time of the second coming, the temple will be rebuilt. The Lord, we're told, is going to be uh, responsible for the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, in Jerusalem, a physical temple. That is still yet to come. And yet there's a spiritual element to this. Now, these are Spurgeon's comments. He says, Christ himself is the builder of his spiritual temple. And he has built it on the mountains of his unchangeable affection, his omnipotent grace and his infallible truthfulness. But as it was in Solomon's temple, so in this, the materials need making ready. There are the cedars of Lebanon, but they are not framed for the building. They are not cut down and shaped and made into those planks of cedar whose odiferous beauty shall make glad the courts of the Lord's house in paradise. There are also the rough stones still in the quarry. They must be hewn thence and squared. All this is Christ's own work. Each individual believer is being prepared and polished and made ready for his place in the temple. But Christ's own hand performs the preparation work. Afflictions cannot sanctify, excepting as they are used by him to this end. Our prayers and efforts cannot make us ready for heaven, apart from the right hand of Jesus, who fashions our hearts aright. As in the building of Solomon's temple, there was neither hammer, nor axe, nor any tool of iron heard in the house, because all was brought perfectly ready for the exact spot it was to occupy. So it is with the temple which Jesus builds. The making ready is all done on earth. It's a great little reminder to us that we are these living stones. We're building, built up into this temple. You know, in the New Testament, Paul tells us that the church is a temple. And in fact, we're told, we're told that we're the temples of the Holy Spirit at least seven occasions. Okay, and we're a dwelling place. But we're being built alongside each other. And sometimes we might need to have a little bit knocked off here and there so that we fit perfectly. You know, for those that have ever been to Jerusalem and have seen the, the foundation stones on the Temple Mount that are there, you'll know how precise those stones have been cut. They were cut in the quarry. They were brought to the Temple Mount. So that again, there was no hammer, no chisel heard on the Temple Mount. They were literally bought and put in place. But there must have been a lot of chipping away at those blocks to make them ready. Well, it's the same with us in our lives. You know, you're going to be right next to potentially another believer as we are built up together into this this, this holy temple, this picture that, that, that Peter's painting for us here. You know, and sometimes we need to have some rough edges knocked off us, you know, to fit well and properly together. You know, believers not only make up the church, but serve in it and ministering as a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices now this is a theme that's going to come out uh, a little bit further when we get down to verse 9 so we'll talk more there but you know all believers we're told are priests we've been given an incredibly privileged position 
You know, and we don't need a mediator because we are priests uh, ourselves. We don't need another priest to go to. We can go directly to Jesus Christ. There is no other mediator. First, First Timothy reminds us of that. So again, we're these lively, living stones being built up a spiritual host. This is together, this holy priesthood. And again, notice what it tells us to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now, such priestly service requires holiness. It's building on the theme of the first chapter. Praise to God and doing good to others are spiritual sacrifices that please him. You know, sometimes we talk about the, the, these ideas, these concepts about, you know, that we are a holy priesthood. And again, we're going to go on to that. But really, we need to understand how to, that plays out in our lives. Well, it is in our service to others. The priests were there to serve the congregation, to minister. We're there to serve each other. Jesus made that very, very clear when he took the, the towel and the bowl and washed the disciples' feet. You know, if we're to, to be his disciples, we've got to do likewise. And Jesus, of course, was a, a priest and a king, um, combining both these roles as we see in ourselves. Again, praise to God uh, is this doing good to others. That, that's what we should be doing. We should be actively seeking to do good. Um, these these are the things that are acceptable. These, these sacrifices that are acceptable to God. Uh, and again, we should also offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Romans 12, uh, 1 and 2 tells us that. Uh, and we're actually told in that passage in Romans 12 that it's our reasonable service. It's not like a, 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 a special level for elite Christians. This is something for every believer. We should be living this way, uh, living our lives set apart from the things of the world, again, acceptable to God and blessing each other, encouraging and supporting and loving and doing good to each other. And now Peter, showing his knowledge of scripture here, not showing off, but just reminding us that he knows what the Bible says, what the, the Tanakh, the Old Testament says. He says, wherefore also... Uh, it is contained in the scripture. Now he's going to give us a little lesson from the Old Testament. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, that word precious again. And he that believes on him shall not be confounded. Now, in verses 6 through to 8 now, starting verse 6 here, Peter's going to quote three Old Testament quotes, uh, looking from Isaiah 28, from Psalm 118, and from Isaiah 8, 14. Uh, Isaiah 28 there, really that, that um, verse again about that chief cornerstone being laid. Uh, Psalm 118 speaks about the rock of offense and so on. You know, so we'll look at these briefly, but... Um, that precious three times already we've seen uh, Peter uh, allude to this in First uh, Peter one nineteen and in two verse four and then obviously in verse seven again. Uh, you know this referring to Jesus as his cornerstone. One commentary put it this way: a cornerstone points to the visible support on which the rest of the building relies for strength and stability. Stability well, that that is Christ. Christ is the cornerstone. We rely on him for strength and stability. So uh, these these scriptures end with, with these quotes we look at in a second. We're told that you should not be confounded. The Greek word uh, that's here means that they will never be put to shame or made a shame. Chuck Miller's comment was on this was uh, the Greek double negative here. Uh, so it shall not be confounded because confounded in the context is a negative term. Um, it shall not be confounded. Uh, he says uh, the Greek double negative here uh, in the subjunctive mood indicates an emphatic negative assertion referring to the future never indeed will they be shamed so peter encourages his readers with a sure scriptural promise of ultimate victory for those who trust christ what 
Chuck's trying to get across there. What Peter's saying is that there is never going to be the possibility of those who are in Christ, who are built upon him, ever being put to shame. Right? There's all sorts of things you can build on in life. There's lots of pastimes, hobbies or careers, families, all sorts of things that you can try and build on. And they become so, so important to so many people, but they can let you down. You know, I'm sure every one of us has experienced in a, a professional capacity in a work setting uh, or, you, or you're aware of if you've seen situations where people put their trust in their job and suddenly it all comes to an end. How many, you know, uh, sad reports have we heard through COVID-19 of people that were in great jobs, secured, doing ever so well, and suddenly this pandemic's hit them, they've lost their jobs, they're left with nothing. It's not a firm foundation to build on. I mean, it's great if you have a job and we should do everything we do as unto the Lord. But, you know, that's not our hope. That's not the foundation. You know, people sometimes have put their hope and their trust in their their abilities, their pastimes, their hobbies, whatever they do. And suddenly those things can come crashing down. You know, the foundation we need to build on is Jesus Christ. And there's this this word, again, the subjunctive mood that's indicated in the, the Greek here. It is that it is never, ever going to be a situation where we will be embarrassed or ashamed or let down or disappointed if we build on Jesus Christ. Verse 7. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient. The stone which the builders disallowed. The same is made the head of the corner. Now Peter's going to give us a really clear distinction. Between the saved and the unsaved. Those who believe in God. Those who choose not to believe in God. Those who have accepted Jesus Christ. And those who have rejected Jesus Christ. This very clear contrast. And of course, Christ is precious. And it implies an ultimate value to those who believe. You know, unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious. You think of that which the world tends to think of as precious. Often that word's associated with gemstones, you know, or gold, for example. Some of those things that have very, very high value, you know, precious gem, sometimes of inestimable value, you know, or you, you think sometimes of a, a piece of artwork, which people may refer to as kind of being precious and so on. Uh, none of that is of any value compared to Christ. Christ is the, the, the highest value that could be attributed to anything or anyone uh, and we're told that he to us is just that because we should appreciate not just what he's done but who he is but those in contrast who have rejected christ stumble and this is the the point that peter's going to make by these quotes from the old testament because they don't allow themselves to be persuaded they reject god as we've said before people don't reject Jesus Christ, they don't reject the Bible, generally speaking, because of evidence. Normally, it's simply a stubbornness in their heart, or it's sometimes, and more often the case, because they weren't even aware that evidence existed, and so they just assumed it's not true. And it's such a sad state. In other words, they were relying on their own knowledge. They were relying on the position, their default position, what they'd heard, that which they'd heard from other people, and so they assumed what others had said is right, rather than coming and checking it out. And they would just reject Christ. Uh, it, it's never, never about evidence. It's never about proof. There is overwhelming proof and evidence to prove that the Bible is true, that the Bible is God's word, that Jesus really is the Messiah. Okay. <clears throat> Peter's second quote comes from Psalm 118 here. Uh, and Jesus 
also quoted uh, this uh, in reference to uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees back in Matthew 21 there as well. Just to read that, Jesus said unto them, uh, Did you never read in the scripture, uh, the stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner? Uh, this is the Lord's doing, it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. That's, that's us, we are that nation, that holy nation that we're going to go on to speak about in verse 9 onwards. So Jesus was saying to the to the religious leaders of the day, you know, this is going to be taken away because you've missed it, you've rejected it. And he says, and whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. You know, Jesus, we're either going to meet him as Lord and Savior or as judge. And, and the choice of that is is made whilst we're on earth. Again, those who, who reject him, uh, they will be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to power. Those whom the Lord will judge, they won't be able to stand. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees had heard his parable, they perceived that he spoke of them. They got this one right. Um, but when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. So again, they, they kind of recognized that they weren't ignorant of who he was. They weren't ignorant that, that God was working in and through this man. They just didn't want to accept it. Their own intellects, their own bias was so strong that they weren't going to allow themselves to believe. Again, this verse 8 says, A stone of stumbling, a rock of offence, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto they were appointed. They're given the opportunity, but they rejected. Now this word, uh, disappointed here, again, this is really that, that quote from Isaiah 8.14 now, the third of the quotes that Peter gives us. And really, rejection of Jesus is fatal and it's connected with a willful rejection of the message of God's word. Yeah, you know, they stumble at the word being disobedient. Now, th- th- this idea here in disobedient is simply to reject. Okay, uh, to disobey the message is to reject it, and to obey it is to believe it. Uh, obedience uh, is used in this context as in obedience to the faith. We see in, cha- in Acts chapter six, verse seven, it speaks about those who were obedient to the faith, who accepted it, who followed it, who sought after it, as opposed to those who turned the other way, who rejected it, who didn't hold it in high regard. Now, all those who do not receive Christ as their saviour, as I've said already, will one day face him as their judge. And because of sin, all disobedient unbelievers are destined for a stumbling, which ultimately will lead to eternal condemnation. You know, people do ask that question, and it's such a shallow question, but, you know, it's a default position. If God is a God of love, why would he send people to hell? Well, it's very simple. God doesn't send anybody to hell. The question is the wrong question. The question that we should ask is, because God is a God of love and has made a way for everybody to escape hell, why would anybody choose hell? Because hell is a choice for people who reject Jesus. By rejecting Jesus, they choose hell. It's like a fork in a road. If you choose one direction, you are rejecting the other. It's as simple as that. For people who choose Jesus Christ, he's their saviour, and also he will be their deliverer from God's wrath. But for those who reject Jesus as being their saviour, who turn away, who don't want to listen, don't want to hear, they are making their choice to accept hell in, instead of. There is no other option for us. You either, you have two options. It's, it's, you know, people sometimes talk about Christianity being very dogmatic and so on. 
I kind of understand the, the, what they're saying, but truthfully, Christianity is not dogmatic in that sense because there's two options and you get to choose. You know, when you look at other religions and particularly what is being promoted by uh, the world today, multi-faith things, they're all trying to say the same thing and that is that we all end up at the same place anyway. In other words, there is only one option. <laughs> That's dogmatic. That's saying there is no choice whether you like it or not. We're all going to go to the same place. doesn't matter how you live your life. We're all going to end up in heaven or their version of no, no. The, the Bible's very clear. You get a choice. It's smoking or non-smoking. You get heaven, you get hell. And we get to choose. All right. So in this way, Christ is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, rejecting whereunto they were appointed. Okay. So, you know, this goes back to that whole idea of predestination. Doesn't mean that God forces people into an eternity separate from him. That's one of the big errors of Calvinism. God doesn't do that. God is a God of love. God is not willing that any should perish. But of course, God is also out of time and in the same, outside of time. And in the same way that we have been appointed to this relationship, we've been uh, made partakers of this heavenly calling, that we were foreordained before the foundation of the world, just in such the same way, those who reject him were also foreordained to this condemnation. Again, it doesn't mean God is unjust, far from it. God has made a way for everybody. We individually get to choose which direction. Now, this idea of stone and rock and so on of Jesus are actually used throughout scripture. And this is just quite an interesting little study as a little side study. You can do this on your own sometime. Um, there's so many occasions. I mean, you go through Psalms, particularly loads of references to, to, to the rock or to the stone in this context. But there's at least seven different ways this, uh, this typology is used. Um, to the believer, Jesus is as a smitten stone. Uh, the, the spirit of life may flow from him to all who will drink. Of course, your mind should go back to the situation in Exodus 17, where the rock there at Rephidim was struck, where Moses struck the rock and the water came out of it. Just as Jesus was struck at Calvary and out of him, that, out of his body, out of his side, literally flowed blood and water. But it speaks of that, that new life for us as well. Uh, and of course, Jesus spoke of himself as being the living water. Jesus himself spoke of that rock, uh, the water that was provided for them, of which if they drink, they would thirst again. But he who drinks of, of me will never thirst, is what Jesus says. So that's to the believer. To the church in general, well, of course, Jesus is the foundation and the chief cornerstone. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that. So not only to the believer, but to the church as a group, as a body, Jesus is the foundation. We've looked at that already this morning. But to the Jews, that is first coming, Jesus was a stumbling stone. And this is what Romans 9 reminds us and so on. Um, oh, let's get my slides in order. Right, there you go. Um, so the fifth one, to so the Gentile world powers, he's the smiting stone cut without hands in Daniel chapter 2, verse 34. The powers of the world that uh, will eventually rule over and dominate the world in this, this coming world empire, the, the one world government that's coming. Those world powers will all be smitten by this stone cut without hands, but by Jesus Christ at his returning. He's not of this earth. That's the idea. Cut with our hands. It's not an earthly thing. It's not a human. Jesus will come from outside of this world uh, and bring judgment upon this world. And then, of course, in God's divine purpose, the stone, which after the destruction of the Gentile world powers, is to grow and fill the earth. Daniel 2, verse 34, again, gives us this kind of uh, picture. 
And then uh, finally, um, the number seven there, to unbelievers, the crushing stone of judgment that will grind those to power. And Mark Matthew 21 alludes to this. So, you know, in different ways, Jesus is pictured in scripture as being a rock or a stone, this kind of idea. Uh, and there's at least seven different ways that this analogy is played out in situations. So. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, this is just such a, a packed verse for us to try and comprehend and get our heads around. But it is just speaking of this incredibly privileged position that we haven't earned, we didn't deserve. But because of our relationship to Jesus Christ, we have been given this permission, uh, this, this position. It's a little bit like, I suppose, you know, somebody in academia may be given an honorary doctorate. You know, they're given some, they didn't necessarily do the work for it, but they're given the title, they're given the position. Um, now, of course, for us, we didn't earn this, we didn't deserve it. But because of our relationship with Jesus, we are given this. We are given this honorary position. It's such an incredible blessing. Now, again, let's just break this down. The chosen generation, royal priesthood. Now, Peter closes this portion, as I said, kind of ends at um, um, the, the end of uh, verse 10. So these last two verses, and probably we'll leave it here this morning. But uh, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Peter says that this encouragement that he wants to give us, this uh, moving exhortation for his readers, is to practice holiness. And he reminds them, and in contrast with the disobedient that he's just been speaking about as well, who are destined for destruction, those that stumble at Christ, that we were chosen, that the Greek word implies elect again. This is who we are. Now, Peter, again, echoes the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah 43. We're studying through Isaiah uh, on our, some of our uh, Thursdays as our Bible studies. We, need to, we will get through to this portion of entry if the Lord tarries. You know, but this idea of being a chosen people is used to apply to only Israel in the Old Testament, but it's now used of both the Jewish and the Gentile believers. God had chosen Israel, God had chosen Abraham and called him to be this, uh, this nation that was set apart for him. But now we're told that this is extended to the church. The church become part of this family of Abraham, this generation, this chosen nation. Through faith, we are connected in to believing Abraham. Now, in regard to the, the priesthood, the responsibility, uh, again, was once solely trusted to the nation of Israel. Uh, originally, the nation, we're told at Sinai, that the, you will be, for me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, later, uh, we get to Exodus uh, 33, the golden calf situation and everything else, we find that the Levites are singled out. And God says, well, actually, I'm not going to have the whole nation as uh, as my priests. I will have just one tribe, and they will act in that role as priests on behalf of the nation. Well, not so with the church. The church, we are all priests. This is the privilege that, that we've been given. We are during this age of grace in this relationship where we have been, uh, all, all believers now are called a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, these terms are used. Uh, in Revelation chapter 1, it's, it's referenced again. You know, these people belonging to God. We are his peculiar treasure that he has brought out of the world. 
you know, the Messiah, as I'm sure you were aware, was prophesied to be both a priest and a king. Now, that's not the way it was in Israel. Typically, because of that situation, you had the Levites who were the priestly tribe, but the kings would come from the line of Judah. So the priesthood and the kingdom in Israel were always kept separate. One of the reasons that Saul uh, blew it uh, and lost the Holy Spirit because he took upon himself the role of a priest in offering up a blood sacrifice because he was frightened because the army was leaving him and he had the Philistines the other side of the hills. And so he thought, yeah, I've got to do something. So he, he, he intrudes on the office of a priest and God's very cross with him because he had no right to do that. Uh, just a, a lack of faith, trust and patience and so on. Um, but of course, Jesus was to be both a priest and a king. And if you remember in our study through Hebrews, we talked about Melchizedek, this incredible character in the Old Testament, who was a king of Jerusalem. Now, this is prior to the time the Jebusites ended up making it their home. The Jebusites were the ones that David then effectively ousted. But the for prior to that time, as we've looked and we've gone through in our studies, there was a, a lineage of kings and priests, the same individual as a king and a priest, in Jerusalem for a period of a thousand years after the time of the flood. Now, it's staggering because it echoes exactly what will occur during the millennial reign of Christ, when Jesus will be a king and a priest, ruling and reigning from Jerusalem over the whole earth for that period of time, for that thousand years. And so Jesus comes in the same category, the same lineage, in a sense, uh, as um, this, uh, this Melchizedek of the Old Testament. But we are also then granted this privileged position. So these descriptions of the church are similar to those that are used of Israel, but there's a really important point I just want to make here, um, because it in no ways indicates that the church supplants Israel nor assumes that the national blessings promised to Israel and to be filled in the millennium devolve upon the church. God's promises to Israel still stand. Just because we have also become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, it doesn't mean that Israel has ceased to become such. Okay, make it very, very clear. Similarity does not mean identity, as one commentator said. So again, you're a chosen generation, a royal priest, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him. I love this phrase. God's purpose in choosing believers for himself is that they may declare the praises of him before others. Now, if you do a study of the Old Testament, you'll find that there's a number of vines mentioned. And of course, we have one in Revelation as well, the vine of the earth. Jesus, of course, is the true vine. Um, but each of the vines that are mentioned in Scripture have this um, mandate, in a sense, of leading people to God. Israel were classed as being a vine and their job was to lead others to God, to be a a witness, an ambassador, uh, to bring glory to God. Now at Babylon, we have a false vine come onto the scene, which has gone down through the ages and will culminate in the book of Revelation. It's a false vine that leads people to a false God. But Jesus comes and says, I am the true vine. It's the true way to God. So Israel, one of their their mandates in a sense, as a nation, they were to be a representative of God. They were to um, represent God to the world. Okay, they failed because they were a bad witness in so many respects. And a lot of scripture kind of covers this. Um but we are now to take up that mantle, that baton in a sense, and we are to be ambassadors and representatives of God. Paul actually uses that phrase, uh, we have it in the English, of us being ambassadors uh, of Jesus Christ. That's how we should be. And again, this purpose that we have is to declare 
the praises of him before others, before this world. We are to be salt and light in this world. We're to make a difference. Now, praises could also be translated here, eminent qualities. So let me put it that way. We are to show forth God's eminent qualities, these excellencies, God's virtues. And that word, by the way, is only used four other times in the New Testament. Very, Peter's very specific in the word that he uses here. That we are to show forth these things of God. Yet we're to let other people see just how great God is. You know, and we can talk from our own personal experience of God's grace, of his mercy that he's shown. But the character of God, and this is one of the reasons we should read and study scripture, so that we get a bigger and better understanding of God. And as we do so, we share that with other people. We let it overflow in our conversation, our uh, talks with other people. Now, these believer priests should live so that their heavenly father's qualities are evident in their lives. This is another thing that we should all show. You know, we're to serve as witnesses of the glory and grace of God. Again, who has called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Uh, Peter explains uh, this figure in, in the next verse. And he quotes from Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. Uh, and he says, verse 9, but it's again this uh, the last part of this, this uh, called us out of darkness into the marvelous light. Now, the darkness refers to that time when we were um, just pagans, or particularly the readers that Peter's writing to, which includes us, of course. We were pagans, we were ignorant of God's provision of salvation, you know, and we weren't a people. This is again what we're told in the book of uh, Ephesians. There was a time we were not a people, but God, who is, you know, we have that great statement uh, in Ephesians chapter uh, three, I believe it is. You know, we were not a people, uh, and we would not have received mercy, but now we have. And that, that's the the, the the contrast. That that's the position we were in. We were in darkness, but now we've been called out of that darkness to walk in this marvelous light. And again, that light now illuminates our path for us. You know, God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. Now, you know, we are not to be ignorant. We're to understand not just the will of the Lord. Of course, that is the the bigger picture. But to understand the times in which we're living, we understand the world in which we're living. Again. This marvelous light illuminates God's people because we have received uh, this this illumination from him. And again, the last verse then for this morning, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Peter's just giving us this contrast, helping us to think what we were like, the position we were in, and now to consider the position we are in. And really the the underlying message here is, Consider what you have been given and let it play out in reality in your lives so that your life is different. <clears throat> One commentator put it this way, the practice of holiness in which God's people serve as a holy and royal priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices and extolling his excellencies is the proper response to the mercy they have received. Let me read that again. The practice of holiness, holy living, in which God's people serve as a holy and royal priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices and extolling his excellencies is the proper response to the mercy they have received. Yeah, just, just from a worldly perspective, if somebody was just to knock on your door, some um, uh, individual who was uh, very wealthy, uh, a philanthropist who, who said, I want to... to Pay off all your debts. I want to, to bless you and to your, your family too. And, you know, and they were to pay off everything you owed and they were to buy you everything you needed in a worldly perspective. There would be gratitude there. You would speak well of that person. 
And that's a very shallow thing because, of course, life does not consist of the abundance of things we possess. But the, the point is that even if somebody from a worldly perspective were to do something like that, we would speak well of them. Well, you consider what God has done. He has forgiven you a debt that you could never have paid. He has not only forgiven you a debt, he's now exalted you to be part of his family, part of the royal priesthood. And he's given you this position where you get to sit and eat at his table. And not only that, he's put you in a position of being one of his elect holy priests, which get to minister to him and also represent him to others. You start to consider what God has done. And then you start to see why Peter's saying we should then show this by the way we live our lives. So just in closing, this next section is going to move on uh, and look at specific ways that Christians should behave differently before the world as citizens, as slaves, as wives and as husbands. So that's what we're going to move on to. uh, But we'll leave it there uh, for this morning. Let's uh, bow our hearts and just pray. Father, we thank you for these things we've been able to look at and review this morning. Father, we thank you that your word says that we are a chosen generation. Lord, it's incredible to think that you picked each one of us. And Lord, we had the freedom to respond as you called us. Lord, we pray for those who up until this point have rejected. Lord, because of their perceived own wisdom or intellect. Lord, because of fear, because of doubts, because of maybe their perceived lack of evidence. Oh, we pray for those individuals. We pray for those in our families, Lord, that don't yet believe. That they would come to this place of realizing what you have done. This incredible gift of salvation that you have given, that cost you the life of your son, the blood of Jesus to be shed. But we thank you now, Lord, that you have elevated us. You've raised us up. You've called us elects. You've chosen us and you've given us position, Lord, of being a holy nation for you. A, a group that is separated out from the rest of this world. Lord, that we are a royal priesthood. And Lord, you've called us to minister to you, to serve you. But Lord, to serve each other. Lord, as the priests of Israel served, Lord, help us to serve each other. And Lord, to care for each other. Lord, help us to do good to each other, as your word says. So Father, we thank you for these things. Lord, impress them upon our hearts that we would keep growing in grace. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.